welcome back to Grace Talks, a Christian's women's podcast that studies the Bible, the women in it, and applies it to our lives today. I hope you've been enjoying the current series on Esther. For this episode, we're going to be starting the third chapter of Esther. If you've been keeping up, then you already know how much I love her story and look to her as a representation of what a biblical woman looks like. I want to shout out Beth Moore again and her Bible study on Esther because it helped me navigate this book my first time studying it. Before we read the third chapter, let me give you a quick recap. King Xerxes is running most of the world through his empire. He's powerful, short-tempered man who ran a beauty contest to select a bride. That bride happened to be our homegirl Esther, and now Esther is queen of the empire. She's found favor in all of the people in the palace, from the servants to the king himself. Thing is, Esther is a Jewish orphan who no one knows is Jewish because her cousin and father figure, Mordecai, advises her to keep it a secret. At the end of the chapter, Mordecai, at the end of chapter two, Mordecai finds out about a plot to kill the king, tells Esther, and the people plotting were impaled on poles. Mordecai's good deed was written down, but went unrewarded and unrecognized. And all that happened in just the last chapter. But now we're going to meet the villain of this story and learn about his evil plans. Open up your Bibles and let's read Esther, starting with chapter 3, verse 1. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. The after these events mentioned is in the 12th year of King Xerxes' reign, when Esther had been queen for five whole years. King Xerxes decides to promote this guy named Haman to be ranked basically second most important powerful in the kingdom, right after the king himself. It doesn't tell us exactly what Haman did to get promoted to this level. We find out in this chapter that he's super wealthy, so that might be part of it. But to our knowledge, there isn't anything special he's done to earn that spot. Funny how Mordecai saves the king's life and doesn't even get a thank you, but Haman, five years after all that happens, gets a whole lot of authority for nothing that we're aware of outside of wealth and probably a whole lot of feet kissing of the king. I mentioned it last week that we can find life unfair. And yeah, life is unfair, but God writes all of the wrongs we experience, maybe not in this life, but definitely in the next. So just wait it out and trust God in your story and in this one. Let's keep reading Esther 3, verse 2. All of the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him, but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day, they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Basically, now that Haman was promoted, everybody had to listen to the king and bow to Haman and be like, oh, powerful, big, great man, you're so cool and better than me. But Mordecai disobeyed the king's command. He wasn't having it. Why? Two possible reasons. One, to bow to a person might be seen as a form of idolatry, giving and 
improper amount of reverence to a person. Two, Mordecai didn't respect Haman. It was probably both of those things, probably both true, but Mordecai's stated reason, according to the guards, is that he is a Jew, which leads us to assume that the lack of bowing was more for religious purposes, idolatry, than his personal opinion of Haman's character. Now, Mordecai would have known that not bowing was disobeying the king's command, which could get him into a whole lot of trouble. And he was facing this choice day after day because the guards were approaching him day after day, asking him why he would not bow. It would be really tempting to just bow and choose to take the easy path, right? So how does Mordecai manage to turn down the temptation day after day? Colossians 3 verse 2 says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So focus on heavenly rewards instead of worldly consequences. Eternal blessings outweigh temporary sufferings. If you're in America, you hopefully won't ever have to face a decision between your faith and your life. People in other countries have had to and still have to make that choice. But even if you don't have to face death, you will have to face choices between your earthly life and your heavenly one. We're told not to conform to the culture around us, but to live out the life God desires for us. And his desires for us doesn't change. We struggle with all of it, basically all the time, but we're supposed to be truthful, loving, kind, pure, righteous, patient, and a whole bunch of other words that involve us being disciplined and having self-control. But every day we face choices like Mordecai to decide between what is easy and what is right. It's easy to live an unhealthy lifestyle. It can be hard to eat well and make yourself go into that workout. It's easy to sleep past the alarm. It can be hard to get up and have a productive day. It's easy to give in to desires. It's hard to acknowledge that saying no is what is best for you. It's easy to let your anger say something harsh in the moment. It's hard to hold your tongue and choose patience and empathy. And speaking of letting anger get away with you, look at Haman's response. He sees Mordecai's refusal to bow and his pride influence him influences him to not only take Mordecai's life, but the life of every person who represents the identity of Mordecai's reason not to bow, the Jewish people. Ephesians 4 verses 26 through 27 says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Haman's anger is giving the devil a foothold. He's being used to create pain, chaos, and fear. Anger causes us to lash out and hurt others. So be careful of your anger. Be careful of the consequences of angry actions. Don't do the devil's work for him. Combat his plans with God's strength and mercy and love. And a side note, it might not be just in this moment that Haman was influenced to show hatred towards the Jews. As a bit of history, Haman is presumed to come from a lineage that was destroyed by King Saul, who was the first of the Jewish kings. So he likely carried generations of hatred towards the Jews. So let's go ahead and continue on with Esther 3, verse 7. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the poor, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. That's a hard sentence when we're trying to understand it in our modern culture and in English. So let me translate Haman gets mad at Mordecai around March and decides to roll some dice-shaped 
clay cubes with inscriptions on them to demonstrate a good omen from the gods uh, to select a day to kill all of the Jews. The dice determines that the slaughter would take place in around February. That roll of the dice was called casting a lot. It's kind of funny that Haman trusts the gods to determine the roll of the dice or the casting of his lot, but Proverbs 16.33 tells us that the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Or in the NLT translation of the Bible, it says, we may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. It'll take the rest of Esther to see where God lets the lot fall. But for now, let's keep reading in chapter 3, verse 8. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all of the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. The king doesn't even ask Haman who the group of people he wants to wipe out are. Haman just says that there are people who live differently than us, which was true, and they do not obey our laws, which was false. And the king hands over his ring for Haman, Haman to carry out whatever his plans would be. Handing over his ring was the equivalent of giving him his signature or the pin to his credit card. It gave him complete access and authority over the empire. And this isn't just like a little kingdom or a single nation. The Persian empire had most of the world under Persian control. Jewish people would have no real protected region to even run to. Now, the enemy cannot possess our minds as children of God, but he loves every opportunity to influence our thoughts. A great way to do that, fear, anxiety. But Psalm 23, 4 says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Even in the midst of Haman's plans for evil, God is with his people. And Haman's plans are evil. In fact, Haman was basically a walking brochure on how to be a villain. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. The Bible provides us with some wonderful examples on the kind of people we should be. It also offers us perfect examples of who not to be. Summed up in that verse, don't look down on others and be prideful. Do not lie. Do not hurt innocent people. Do not allow yourself to even dream of evil in your hearts. Do not rush to participate in what is wrong. Do not lie about others or start rumors. And do not stir up drama. Don't stir the pot. Haman loves to do all of these things and look at what his evil plans are, uh, starting in Esther chapter 3, verse 12. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, 
and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatchers were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. That should sound familiar to you. It should. It's a really ugly cycle in history where someone tries to commit genocide on the Jews. The first time it happened was before they were even called Jews in Egypt when the Pharaoh ordered all Jewish baby boys to be drowned in the Nile. The most recent attempt was in our last century with Hitler. Destroy, kill, and annihilate. Men, women, and children. That's what it said. No one to be spared in the vast empire. What if news came out today, in our current month of April, that every single person in America who called themselves a Christian was to be killed in March of next year? That you and anyone else you know that has any kind of association with Christianity was about to be wiped out, drug out of your homes, killed by your own neighbors, your property belonging to whoever killed you. And this law couldn't be repealed. The terror that would begin coursing through you, knowing that you, your children, your friends, your family were going to die in exactly 11 months. Look at the timing of the edict. What date was it sent out? Well, it was written and sent out the 13th of that month, so people likely saw it on the 14th. Now read what Leviticus 23.5 says. The Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. The Passover is the celebration of when God saved them from Egypt, brought them out of slavery, allowed death to pass over their doors. Maybe when the people read Haman's awful news, they cursed at the promise of the Passover. They turned their celebration into anger towards God and what felt like broken promises. Or maybe they saw the timing as a way for God to remind them not to worry, that the same God who delivered them from Pharaoh and many other enemies would deliver them from Haman as well. And then lastly, let's read Esther 3, verse 15. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. As the world cries out in confusion at all of the injustice that it sees, we have to remember what Hebrews 4, 13 says. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Whatever an evil heart succeeds on earth, he will give an account for in God's throne room. Haman will have to give an account of his actions in God's throne room. So all of the bad guys offering footholds to Satan during our time on earth. And so will you. How lucky we are to be defended by Jesus. How lucky we are to have his perfection and his payment for sin cast out and forget all of our debts. Right now, the story looks pretty bad, depressing, honestly. But as the name of the book suggests, there is a hero hiding within the palace walls. So ask yourself, what can just one woman do? 
stick around next week to find out. That's everything that I have for today. Don't forget to review this podcast um, on Apple Podcasts or on any other listening platform that you check it out on. Give a follow on any of the social media accounts. Share an episode link with one of your friends. Um, And if you're watching this on the new YouTube channel, like and subscribe. So every time you share my content um, or you engage with it, you increase the reach that Grace Talks makes. So yeah, I hope you join in next time as we continue talking about Esther. As usual, if you have any questions about today's episode, the Bible, or anything else, I would be more than happy to answer those for you. If you haven't heard it today, God loves you. I love you. You are important. You have worth and you have a purpose. I'm signing off. Bye.